Please take your Bible with me to Psalm 130 this morning. Thank you, worship team, for the ministry of music here right before the message. I think in the second service, I'm going to have everybody turn right to Psalm 130 before the song because it is a song that is given right straight from what the psalmist gave us in Psalm 130. This morning, we're going to look as we continue our study on the Psalm of Ascents and looking at this theme of rise, looking at a time in life where the church today must rise up, be prepared and, and ready for what God brings our way. And though society around us continues to crumble day after day and the world and culture becomes very weak and bleak, we have great hope. And if you've noticed the theme of our songs this morning, it's directing our our thoughts towards the saving grace of Jesus Christ. And that's wonderful uh, assurance for us. And so today we, we gather as the church and we find hope in that. We find encouragement and we find strength. But we also know that there are people that God wants to continue to give the truth of the gospel to because of our touch, because of our voice, uh, because of our actions, because of our obedience. And so let's continue to be that voice. Let's continue to be that inviter. Let's continue to take the gospel to the places where we go, and uh, let's see what God will do. Now, Psalm 130, it continues through with these, these 15 psalms that are a part of the Psalm of Ascent. If you've been a part of the series, you understand that these Psalm of Ascents were a, a collection of songs written, and, and the Israelites would sing them as they would travel to one of the feasts, one of the three feasts of the year. Scholars also believe that these would have been psalms that would have been sung when the Israelites would come out of exile and returning to their homeland. Can you imagine what that would have sounded like or what that would have been like? To think about a group of people who had rebelled and disobeyed God and now returning back to their homeland because they had been redeemed or rescued. And now as they make their way back, they lift their voices collectively together in singing some of these psalms that are collected in the psalms of ascent. And so we come to Psalm 130. It's one that gives us with the opening words of a, a very fitting title to this psalm. It's one that talks about out of the depths I have cried unto thee, O Lord. And the opening words now will lead us to a place of direction where as a starting point to the prayer, where does the desperation turn? When does it become words of hope and encouragement? And so let's read it together. Psalm 130 verse number one. Out of the depths have I cried unto thee, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let thine ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? But there is forgiveness with thee, that thou mayest be feared. I will wait for the Lord. My soul doth wait, and in his word do I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than they that watch for the morning. I say, yes, more than they that watch for the morning. Let Israel hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is mercy, and with him is plenteous redemption, and he shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. This morning, let's jump in. Let's study this together, and uh, let's see this Psalm 130 as waiting on the Lord. Father, we're so grateful for what the music has done in preparing our hearts for the text for today. I thank you for what you're going to give us. Now, may we come to the table prepared and ready. Would you feed us today? Would you bring something to our heart and our mind that would convict us, challenge us, encourage us? Would you bring us to a place of desire to take steps of growth and change? 
We don't want to become complacent in our Christian journey. We certainly don't want to find excuses and blame to somebody else for our struggles. We want to take ownership of the areas where we miss the mark. And certainly want to engage now with what the words of Psalm 130 will encourage us and challenge us to do. Thank you for how you use this psalmist to write these words. Whatever circumstance he might have been in, now we can relate. We can partner together today. And may it now we be words that we take to heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Did you see some of the main words that were written within these eight verses? Kind of scale down or look at this. And we see the word cry, the word wait, watch, and hope. These are words of, of great anticipation. We find ourselves relating and connecting with these words even in our life. Some of you today are at a moment of crying. Now, not crying because your bones are just really sore and you barely rolled out of bed after volleyball last night, but really just crying because of what is going on in your life, the despair. Some of you find yourself waiting, watching, and others are at a place where you're looking for hope. So today, wherever you are, and really whoever you are, you find the assurance in God's grace, and you're really encouraged by the love of God. And what he wants to do is he wants to either bring transformation to your life, if you don't know Christ as your personal Savior, or he wants to bring great restoration to a a shattered and messy moment in your life. And so though we don't know the specifics of how this psalmist wrote this or what was going on in the moment of this, we know that he was able to reflect on an Israel who was rebellious and in messy moments. A nation of Israel that was shattered, a, a nation that was probably in exile at the moment that this psalm was written. This would have been a moment where the psalmist is getting gripped, uh, coming to grips with the fact that they needed redeeming, restoring, and forgiveness. And so I want us to see how this moment of repentance comes to bring great assurance with a renewed hope and a renewed trust. Right away in verse number one and two, the psalmist begins. He jumps right in with this intense prayer. This I will cry out of the depths, I cry unto you, O Lord. These two verses speak of, a, of our hearts having a deep longing. And we know what deep longings are. We know what deep desires are. And this desire is typically seen when, uh, as he is writing out of the depths of this cry, is coming from a disconnection. This comes from a moment where he felt as if God was far. It came from a moment of great reality because of the depths of despair of personal choices. Now, many of you know what crying from the depths really looks like. Some of you can look back maybe in the last couple of weeks, couple of days, or maybe even the last couple of hours, I don't know, but you know what deep despair and crying out feels like and looks like. And sometimes those moments of despair where we, we cry out, it, it comes from sadness or hurt, or maybe some are going through betrayal, rejection, maybe loss in your life. These moments of such despair have nothing to do with maybe what you have done, but you're crying out in agony and pain, and the circumstances have happened because of somebody else's doings. And when it's somebody else's doings in our life, it's that moment of despair that brings great uh, anguish and depth to why you're there. 
Now, the psalmist is not writing to say, you who are in agony because so-and-so has wronged you. The psalmist is writing, those who are hurt because you face betrayal. The psalmist is not saying, hey, just come on, let's comfort one another. The psalmist is not addressing that. What the psalmist is addressing here with this depth of despair is because of personal choices. You see, we've all been there before because of our personal choices. We've made dumb decisions, regretful moments, maybe even life-altering actions. And what happens is, is we face these severe consequences because of what we chose to do. Now, in preparation this week, I thought, well, this would be a great place for a personal illustration. And then as my mind began to unravel, I thought, nope, not using that one. Nope, they don't need to know that. No, not going there either. So I've got nothing for you as an illustration today, all right? I just want to point it back to you, okay? So you think of your own illustration, a moment where you have made dumb decisions, regretful moments, life-altering actions that have given severe consequences because of what we chose to do. So this intense prayer comes with a longing and a desire for something different. He says, I'm crying out of the depths. I'm giving this prayer to you, this cry to you, not because so-and-so hurt me, not because such-and-such rejected me, not because failure on somebody else's part. He says, but it's it's personal here. We're, We're facing consequences because of our personal decisions. And Christian, you have to realize there's nothing more scary than a complacent Christian who does not desire to change, to grow, or to be anything more like Jesus Christ. That's a scary place to be. And that's why we talk about continual growth, the sanctification, the being more like Jesus Christ, changed and shaped into his image. Because the most scary place to be would be a complacent Christian. But then the most sad place to be is someone who needs Jesus saving grace, yet they reject it because of their lack of belief. And we see that all too often. It saddens us and it frustrates us. But we have to know that there's a devil who is duping and an enemy who is blinding them. And so we continue to pray for them. I love that scattered throughout our congregation, there are many of you in here who are weekly, daily praying over a lost soul. You have shared their name with me. You you have shared their, their direction with me. And we are praying together that God would draw them to himself, that the Holy Spirit would convict their heart, and that we would have the privilege to be a steward of seeing that soul come to Jesus Christ because of our planting of a seed and watering. Remember, in all of that, the pursuit is to break down barriers, to build relationships and plant gospel seeds so that God would use you, us, collectively together as a church to see more people come to a saving place of Jesus Christ. Because this deep despair, yeah, the church and Christians face it all too often because of personal choices we make, but there's a lost and dying world who are in great deep despair who need guidance and love from a church like this, from people like this, to just share the saving grace of Jesus Christ. In verse 2, he says, Lord, hear my voice. Do you notice something different in verse 1 and 2 about the word Lord? 
You see, in verse number one, Lord, it's all capital letters, and that is Yahweh, Jehovah, that is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That is the one who we direct our worship to. But the word Lord in verse number two is just another name for God himself, and that is Adonai. You've heard that before. And so this word here in verse number two now comes very personally, speaking in verse one to the Yahweh in that direction, that name of the God, the great creator of all mankind and all that exists. That's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And now he gets personally says, Lord, I want you to hear me. This title, this name of God of the Bible is the creator of heaven and earth. And he says in this reason, because it's the master and ruler And he wants his master and ruler to hear his request because he knows the master and ruler who hears his voice is able and capable to do something about it. You see, sometimes we get in such a place of our prayers going out to just some great God and creator of the universe and we think somewhere out there, up there, would you just hear me? And that's why the psalmist pulls up a chair and gets real personal and says, Lord, Adonai, my master, my ruler, I need you to hear my voice. I'm in great despair. I'm in great depths of despair. And I need you to hear what I'm facing. And so the plea to God is emphasized using this repetition in poetic form. We know that we're reading through the Hebrew poetry when we come to psalms and And here he's going to use this repetition which shows emphasis here because he says, hear my voice, let thine ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. We would do well to give more emphasis to our prayers, to the Lord, our ruler, our master, to Adonai. Now this intense prayer, verse 1 and 2, it leads to a a genuine repentance. As in verse 3 and 4, He says, if thou, Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah, should mark iniquities, well then, O Lord, who shall stand? Look at the beautiful poetry here again written with the Yahweh and the Adonai directing both to the great God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then to ruler and master. Same God, different titles. Verse 4, but there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. Forgiveness, honestly, for many of us can be a hard pill to swallow. We all goof from times. And if we can overcome the hurdle of um, apology, and by the way, if you struggle with apologies, there's a good book written out, The Five Languages of Apology. I've got 25 copies I'm ready to give out. Now, I think I only have about four or five copies, but if you'd like one. But you know, sometimes forgiveness is a hard pill for us to swallow because though we long for it, Sometimes we struggle to accept it and think that we're worthy of it. Have you ever been forgiven from someone and then just was in doom and gloom for the next 48 hours? Almost as if you have to pay it for, almost like you have to pay it um, uh, in, in, in retribution to what you've done. Like, yeah, I know you forgive me, but now I have to be miserable for the next few days. And in turn, we're making everybody around us miserable. Because we just have a very difficult time swallowing the pill of forgiveness. And you know, the same ones who struggle with receiving forgiveness here on earth are the ones where it is magnified with God. Because if you're like me, it's like coming to God with that same plea of, of, of repentance and for forgiveness. And you're like, God, I know I was just here. And I know we're going to have the same conversation 
God, I am overwhelmed by this and I need your forgiveness. And what happens is that we see in Psalm 130 verse 3, God's judgment is sure, but so is his forgiveness. Verse number 4. So you want to be all about God's judgment and you want to be all about what you deserve, I get it. But that should push you forward to being a recipient of God's sure forgiveness, not a maybe forgiveness. John would even have to write his letter to the churches scattered all throughout Asia Minor. And as he's writing this in combat against what the false teachers were trying to bring in of a message of God, he had to remind Christians, if you confess your sins, he's faithful, he's just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So get rid of the backpack of guilt that you're trying to carry around every day because you think you're not worthy. Hey, let's just all get on the same page and realize, yeah, we're not worthy. But God's grace and mercy kicks in. And that's where we can find comfort and hope. So you take your guilt and now you turn it around where you accept God's forgiveness. I mean, if it came from a truly contrite heart where you were truly repentant, and you wanted to be clean and renewed and restored, he says, it's done. It's taken care of. Now let's get back to work. So Christian, we find in Psalm 15, the reminder, this Psalm of David, and he said in verse one, Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? And here it is, he that walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. He that backbites not with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his neighbor. And then the psalmist would write in Psalm 24, who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord or who shall stand in his holy place? He's going to be very clear here. He says, he that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. In the New Testament, James would help his readers by telling us this this aspect of fleeing the devil or, or resisting the devil and he will flee from you. Then he says, draw nigh unto God and he will draw nigh unto you. And then he says, he says to purify your hands and, and, and to cleanse your heart. He says, you double-minded. So in our Christian journey, we find ourselves always straddling the fence, and we think if we can put on the fancy look for Sunday, people will think we are holy Joes and super saints, and that's good for us. And then we go into the wickedness of our, of our week, and we indulge in what the world has to offer, and then we clean up enough to come back on Sunday to say the right verbiage, to look the right way, and to sing the right songs. And that's why James says, you double-minded, don't, don't. you just got to cleanse your, your heart and, and purify your hands, or vice versa, you'll have to find it in James 4. But uh, the, the, the idea there is this forgiveness, this cleansing, and this restoration, and it'll come when we resist the devil, and it'll come when we draw near to God. So what great motivation to live a blameless life. Now, we, we know we're not going to uh, achieve perfection. We're all going to fall, but when we do, get back up. A great illustration there is is last night with the volleyball game. There were many people over 40 years old diving for volleyballs. I just, I don't understand. Like, I'm like, I'm not doing that. I don't want to crack my head open, and I want to roll out of bed tomorrow. But I mean, Dr. Jenkins, he was all over the place. 
He said he's getting knee pads for next week. David James, man, game one, he was all over the place. Scott Boyd, I saw him rolling around the gym floor. Bree Sutton, she's not here. She's in discipleship this morning. She'll be in the second service. I can't wait to pick on her. Uh, but it was, it was quite, a, quite a look. I tell you what, though, they got right back up. Now, maybe pride got them right back up. They're like, I'm not hurt. All right, let's go. Next play, next play. But the truth is, is when we fall, we just got to get back up. Get going. The restoration is beautiful. God still wants to use you. He still wants you a part of his plan. And so here is this amazing forgiveness. The Christian life and, and the Christian faith is not about achieving this perfection. It's about living in God's grace. What Paul wrote to the Romans in chapter 5, he said, For as by one man disobedience, well, then many were made sinners. Thank you, Adam. So by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Well, thank you, Jesus. Moreover, the law entered so that the offense might abound. The law came into place to show where the offense would be. The law was never put into the place to save anyone. It was to reveal the offense. It says, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. So where sin abounds, grace much greater abounds in our life. And so here, this forgiveness in verse number four, he says, there is forgiveness with you. I love what Boyce said here as is, is a quote that I wanted to share. He said, you may not find forgiveness with other people. Okay, he's going to continue on, but let that just sink in for a moment. Some of us are sitting here today and we're struggling because we're, we have not been granted forgiveness from somebody here on earth. And, and then we carry that along and we think, I'm not worthy of restoration. I'm not worthy of a second chance. I'm not worthy to be used by God. So here's what he continues to say. He says, your husband or your wife may not forgive you. Maybe you've wronged him or her. Your children may not forgive you. Your coworkers may not forgive you. You may not even be able to forgive yourself. There is one who will, and that one is God. So write down where you can see and reflect on it often, this phrase, our God is a forgiving God. You know, I, I think probably more than we're willing to admit it, we would all benefit from that very simple statement day in and day out. We come to the end of our day and we take the burdens to bed with us and we toss and we turn and we have a hard time falling asleep, or it's the first thing we think about when we wake up the next day. It's there, it's there, it's there. And we'd be best to be reminded that our God is a forgiving God. And I get it. Trusting God can be among some of the greatest challenges for us. But if we can trust in his forgiveness, it'll free us up so that we can continue to live for him. Remember, God is the one who is responsible for the provisions of forgiveness, not us. So it's not God, I'm coming to you for forgiveness because I've, I've said the right things. I'm praying the right passage. I've done all the right steps. So here I am, grant me your forgiveness. No, it's only through God that gives provisions for forgiveness. Nothing in and of ourselves. 
So don't try to bring anything to the table. Don't negotiate with God. Don't try to swindle a deal with him. Just come to him with a humble heart that says, God, I've goofed and I need your forgiveness. I desperately want your restoration so that I can move forward. Look what the psalmist does now. In verse 5, he, we see this transitional statement. He says, I wait for the Lord. This proper pause in the middle of this poem brings us to this place of reflection. It's a, it's a state of activity. It's waiting. We're used to verbs of being in quick action. Go, run, do. But the word wait, we kind of think is just so very passive, lazy, not a good look. But waiting can be the very thing that can help us the greatest. Because the psalmist says here that I will wait on the Lord. It doesn't say I'm going to be busy doing, I'm going to be busy planning, I'm going to be busy scheming or forcing my way. No, he says I'm going to wait on the Lord. Yesterday, Bailey Brooklyn and I went on a bike ride. What a great, beautiful day it was. You know, it was overcast, it was cold, you know, it was like 80. That was cold. I mean, it was nice. And so we went on a little bike ride around our neighborhood, and then we live real close to the town center, the outdoor mall, so we rode on the sidewalk on Hardin Boulevard. We were very far from the main highway, all right? Natalie knows where we were going. She knew to be praying the whole time. Her mommy mind gets going, but we were, we were good. We rode over to the town center. We rode around a little bit. Then we pull into to Starbucks for a little treat. But here's the one thing that we had going over and over again was there a lot of places where we'd have to stop and we would have to wait until it was our turn to go. We would pull into the first intersection, and I talk a lot with the girls about what to be looking for. We walk through everything while we're waiting. So I'll say, Brooklyn, as we put to the light, she hits the button. All right, what do we watch? I know, I know that little sign, he's going to come on and be like, come on, come on. All right, but what are we going to be looking for first? So she looks back. She says, okay, we've got to make sure this car who's going to turn right on red, we've got to make sure they see us crossing. Then we need to make sure that this car going the other way is noticing us. Okay, good. We get to the next intersection. It's a whole different setup. They hit the button. Bailey, what are we going to do? All right, we've got to wait here until they, the, the green light comes on and then it's our turn. Right. But what if there's more cars that don't see us? Okay, we just need to wait. And then they say, let's look at the driver. And when the driver motions us, it's good to go. Okay, good. So we're going through all of that. But what we had to learn was, though, we wanted to just keep riding. We wanted to keep going. Who wants to stop while you're pedaling and going? We had to learn that the important part to the success of the ride was waiting. I thought about that a little bit this weekend and thought about even in the Christian journey how important it is sometimes that we wait. And then you realize that sometimes while we're waiting, we see that the crosswalk sign says it's okay to go. And we're like, oh, there's my sign. God's like, well, no, 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 no. I got a car getting ready to turn right on red. You better be looking around and waiting for me. So sometimes in the waiting of life, we want to push forward. We want to look for our little signals where God is saying, wait for my motion. You remember the, the uh, thought last week in Psalm 123, where the servant waits for the small gesture of the master, the maiden waits for the movement of the mistress. In the same way, we as the servants of God wait for that small gesture from the Lord that says, come, go, stop, wait, whatever it might be. 
So the psalmist comes to this place realizing there's a lot of anxiousness among the people who are singing this song, coming straight out of exile, and they would have been excited about what God has, but they're saying this depth of our cry to you, O Lord, this moment of forgiveness that is much needed, I'm going to wait on you. In verse number five, we say that it's in his word, I do hope. Now, this waiting was not passive or inactive. This was one that was going to be actively set in motion, and it was his hope that was going to be upon God's promises, which were revealed in his word. Let me ask us this. Why, uh, while you are waiting on God, what are you doing? While you're waiting to hear from God, you offer your prayer, asking God for wisdom and direction. Now, what are you doing? Well, I'm just waiting for him to smack me upside the head with his answer. But notice what the psalmist said, is that he is waiting on the Lord and his hope is going to be in his word. So we need to live out the principles of his word. We need to saturate our lives with his word. Teenagers in here, college students in here, when you're looking at your future, it can bring a little bit moment of anxiousness. It can bring this little sense of like, what's next? Or how do I get there? Or you see those people across the aisle? I want to be like them one day. I don't know who that might be, but there's plenty of examples. And when we look at that thought, you are praying, you're asking God to give you wisdom and direction on who to date, one day who to marry. You're asking God to give you the direction for college or tech school. Or you're asking God to give you wisdom of going away, staying at home. Like There's a lot of things that you're praying through. And, and, and it's important for you to remember and to learn at this age and at this place in your life that you're going to get fed a lot of opinions and a lot of comments and a lot of direction. And you're going to have to learn to decipher through those pieces. But the greatest place that you will always find your perfect peace is going to be to saturate your life in God's word. So parents in here, when a teenager comes to you, a college student or a single that's lived in your home for the last 40 years, I don't know how old they are, but when they come to you and they say, what am I supposed to do? You certainly have every right and ability to give your wisdom and direction. In the multitude of counselors, there is safety. But parents always direct your kiddos back to saturating their life in the word of God. As they continue to make God's word an important part of their life, God just puts those pieces in place. Don't send them to a text that they're going to hopefully find that this says who to marry. I'll never forget the teenager who said he learned in his devotions that he's not going to marry two people at the same time. All right, good. Well, we've got that. So send them to a place that's going to be helpful to them, a place where they'll learn to delight themselves in the Lord, a place where they'll learn full dependency on his will and way, Maybe a passage that's going to help them to learn to cry and pray, Lord, here am I, send me, use me, do with me as you would see fit. This is such an important part of waiting on the Lord. So live out the principles of his word. Don't just make good decisions, make the best decision because God's word is working in your heart. And by the way, Christian, you can clearly identify decisions we make in our life that was not guided and backed up by the principles of God's word. There's a lot of oops and boo-boos that we cause because we didn't saturate it in God's word. 
And then God's word is living and active. We know that from Hebrews chapter 4. It's always discerning the thoughts and intentions of our heart. That's a powerful living word of God. So make it a part of your life. The psalmist chooses this brilliant image in chapter, uh, excuse me, verse number 6. This brilliant image to express his patient anticipating of waiting on the Lord. I, don't you think that's the hardest part of waiting? Is the duration. It's not knowing when it'll end. It's trying to be patient. And so he's going to use this image, and he, we see this watchman in the darkness of the early morning just standing there and waiting, waiting and waiting for the morning to come. As he scans the horizon for the first sign of the, of the rising sun, the watchman doesn't doubt that the morning will come. He just has to be patient and wait diligently. And so the night may seem endless, and some of you know what the night, an endless night looks like, tossing and turning, waking up because you don't feel well, maybe kiddos sick through the night. I'll never forget some of the nights we had when the girls were just babies and some of the nights where we all had to share a room because we were on a trip or, or something. And I remember one, one night, I don't remember which girl it was, I don't want to blame one of them, but I'll blame both of them. But... Uh, one of them just cried throughout the night, and it was hard. You're like, will this night ever end? And uh, you know what endless nights feel like. And the watchman had this, end, this, this moment where he is patiently waiting. And so what the psalmist says is, I will wait longer than the watchman waiting for the morning. He says, I'm willing to keep going because the watchman knows that there's a final end to this. And he knows as he watches the clock tick by, as he watches the sundial gut to get to its next place, he knows that the sun will finally come. In our life, as we wait on the Lord, we must be willing to wait and wait and wait until he is ready to move. The last part of this song, we find ourselves being drawn out of the depths we're naturally disposed to worshiping the God who provides and whose love is steadfast. And look at now this focused hope to end this beautiful song. He says, he will redeem. Now with verse 7, the phrasing turns from the personal to the public. The psalmist has made this very personal in verses 1 through 6. And now he's going to make this a public cry and says, let Israel hope in the Lord. And so while the psalmist would learn in waiting upon God and trusting him from the depths, is now he is going to say that it's put on Israel, that they would put their hope in Yahweh Adonai. What a moment of escalated celebration. Don't you love in some of those songs that we sing? Like I just, to this, and I know I say it every week, how I enjoy worshiping with you and, and how the songs are captivating and, and directing our worship to God. And I sincerely mean this when I bring it up, but I, I thought this morning was, was just an incredible moment of worship. The songs would have these escalated moments of, 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 of a peak, of a worship, of a thought. Of course, every church gets really souped up and excited when we talk about a, a conquered grave or a, an empty tomb, and you're like, yeah, right? You just want to sing it. And, and so that emotion always comes. But then when you, how can you sing a song like Jesus Saves with any kind of sour face or, or a, a down spirit? Like the salvation of Jesus, the hope and the transformation that he brings. 
And then as the team ministered with Psalm 130 right before the message, I mean, these are escalated moments of celebration just as verse 7 and 8 are. This has been building up to now. And sometimes the call of God to the follower is to accept that we cannot get ourselves out of the pit. We can't do it on our own. We absolutely need him. We cannot move forward or closer until we again seek his forgiveness. And when his forgiveness is granted and we receive that, once we are free, then we become the help and the aid to somebody else seeing the rope of God's mercy, his grace, and his steadfast love. So, so often, we have neglected our neighbor or others because we live in too much guilt of ourself. So this hope is of this plentiful redemption as we see in verse 7. This hope is found in the Lord and in this redemption that comes from him. Uh, verse, um, there's a psalm that says, And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in thee. Another psalmist wrote, blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose help is in the Lord, Yahweh, his God. So we would find that it's so crucial and important that we put the, the direction of our hope in the right place. I'm thankful for his mercy. I'm thankful for his steadfast love, but my hope is not in that. I'm thankful for his, um, his forgiveness, but my hope is not in that. My hope is found in the source of all of that, and that is God himself. Now, we find great stability and confidence in the fact that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But if there were any element that God was changeable, which he's not, we would find still our hope to be in him as the source. So because he is unchangeable, well, then our hope can't change and go into anything else. Spurgeon put it this way. He said, cease looking for the water and look for the well. You will more readily see the Savior than you see salvation. I'm thankful for my salvation, but let that direct me to the Savior. You see, my hope is not in the water, it's in the well. My hope is not in salvation, it's in the Savior. My hope is not in the mercy, it's in the giver of forgiveness. My hope is not in what was accomplished on the cross. My hope is in the sacrifice of the Lamb of Jesus Christ. So Spurgeon continues by saying, For he is lifted up, even he who is God, and beside him there is none else. You will more easily fix your eye on Jesus than upon justification, sanctification, or any other separate blessing. So we come alongside of this psalm, and we partner with that idea. Hoping in the Lord, because he is the one who will redeem. Now, we all know in here that we're justified by grace through faith. Sometimes in the walk of faith, we focus too much on our, our personal, emotional experiences with God. And we look to go from one emotional experience after another, so that when that emotional experience doesn't happen, we're like, whoa, what's going on? Why didn't that song stir me? Why don't I appreciate the music? Why didn't I walk out of the sermon like pepped up and ready to roll? Because we go from one emotional experience with God after another. 
And if that's where our fuel is, if that's where our motivation is, uh, we're going to find ourselves to be self-absorbed. So when God calls believers to love him and to love others, it means we give of everything of ourselves. So no longer am I self-centered, self-preserving, self-promoting, or self-loathing. When those are not my main focus, then I can, I can learn to serve other people. That goes back to getting rid of the backpack of guilt so that we can serve the Lord by loving other people. If we come to church every weekend just to find somebody to cry over us, to pity over us, and to show us mercy and grace, we've lost our mission and focus. When we're so unraveled by what the boss man has done or the co-workers are doing or what the neighbor keeps bugging us with, or when we can't resolve personal conflicts in our marriage, with our kids, with our parents, with our friends, with people in our life, when we're just always at angst against things, we're not focused in loving God and loving people. So the psalmist brings us to that conclusion. When God has provided our greatest need, the forgiveness of life, the forgiveness of our sins, the ability to serve him and greatest is salvation. When we are understanding of those provisions, we are free from our own strivings and now able to focus on others. So the celebration comes to this place. Out of the depths I cry, looking for your forgiveness. My hope will only be in you as my source. And now here would say, let me take that, this focused hope, and let's serve others. This great redemption comes in verse number eight. Israel singing this together. Again, can you just picture it in your mind? This psalm of repentance of some seven different psalms that are written throughout the 150, this is one of those of great repentance. And so as they walk back from exile to their promised land of Jerusalem, you can hear their voices. And that it comes to the end in saying that let Israel hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is mercy, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he shall redeem from all our iniquities.